Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Was the Hebrew Psalter purposefully shaped and arranged by editors to convey part? Was the Hebrew Psalter purposefully shaped and arranged by editors to convey particular theological message? Adam Hensley says yes. By examining the relationship between the Davidic covenant and the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants, He suggests the editors understood these covenants as a theological unity whose common fulfillment centers on an anticipated royal successor to David. Join us as we talk with Adam Hensley about his recent book, Covenant Relationships and the Editing of the Hebrew Psalter. You're listening to New Books in Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm Michael Morales, your host. Adam D. Hensley is Old Testament lecturer at Australian Lutheran College in Australia, His PhD was earned at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. Adam, welcome. Thank you, Michael. So, Adam, how did you come to research on this topic? Well, when I was in grad school, I was looking for a topic, as you do, and I I was interested in post-exilic biblical literature. So I was actually looking at Chronicles for a while until one of my professors suggested I might find this area of scholarship interesting, and um, indeed I did. So I, I started to read around, and the first book I picked up was uh, editing of the Hebrew Psalter by Gerald Wilson. And um, and as I'm sure you hearers will know, this has been a landmark volume. But I didn't actually know that at the time. I just took, saw the title and I thought this will uh, get me into this area uh, well, and indeed it did. So uh, I think immediately I was struck by just Wilson's insights and observations uh, about the Psalter. Um, you know, his study of ancient um, uh, anthologies and tippets and so forth. Um, and, and then in the Psalter itself, just all these uh, details that I had noticed before. And I think um, probably a lot of people can relate to this. But uh, before I'd gotten into it, I, the Psalter was always kind of an overwhelming book. It was you know, puzzling how, how all these psalms uh, were there, and, and um, there's so many of them that it's hard to get your head around, as it were, and I, I don't think we'll ever succeed in fully doing that, but um, it certainly uh, sparked my interest, and, and I wanted to pursue this further. So I, I found that um, that many of his insights just had this enduring value, and um, and I certainly affirm many of them in, in the book. At the same time, I noticed that there were certain things about how he uh, interpreted the significance of the Psalter that didn't quite sit right. And one of them was that there seemed to be this presupposed answer to how the covenants related to one another. Um, uh, Wilson, uh, of course, sets up the first, or understands the first three books of the Psalter uh, as being something of a, what other scholars have called a messianic Psalter that, that holds out hope for messianic uh, renewal and, uh, you know, the hope of future kingship being restored, um, and then sees a later redactional effort uh, adding Psalm 1 and books 4 and 5 
somewhat mitigating that so that hope is diverted away from what he sees as a, a failed Davidic monarchy um, and covenant um, in favour of life under Moses. And w- that seemed to me to reflect uh, a sort of a ready-made, as it were, understanding of how these covenants actually related uh, for those who put together the Psalter. And, uh, uh, but I wanted to address that question directly and, and ask well, what, what is the relationship between the Davidic covenant particularly and the, the pre-monarchic covenants, especially the Mosaic, but you know, with that, the Abrahamic. And uh, while that itself is an interesting distinction, um, the mo- most important distinction, so far as I could discern from the uh, work I was reading in, uh, was that between the Davidic covenant, whose status is much discussed in the Psalter, and uh, those other covenants. So I set about trying to find a, a methodology that would uh, allow me to investigate that. Now, what sort of clues in the Psalter would lead some scholars to suggest that there may be intentional design in the arrangement of the Psalms? Yes, there's lots of different kinds of evidence, as it were. And in fact, this is the focus of the first part of my book, is to reevaluate this uh, this stuff, because scholars have, have been uh, looking into this for quite some time. Um, and... Some of the most obvious kinds are, are the author groupings. Um, you know, you get a lot of Davidic Psalms together in, in say, Book 1. That, that's quite obvious. So there's only two exceptions to that in Psalm 10 and 33. And even those um, seem to be uh, brought into this as a group that is uh, to be recognized as a Davidic sequence. Um, and likewise, you have the same kind of thing going in, on in Book 2. Uh, lots of Davidic Psalms strung together, um, some anonymous Psalms there. Wilson noted that other features in the, in the superscript were used to sort of soften the transitions often too across either anonymous Psalms or even completely differently authored Psalms. Say uh, you go from a Korahite group in, in um, 42 to 49, and then you've got this lone Asaph Psalm in Psalm 50, and then you move into the, the Davidic group proper beginning with uh Psalm 51, uh, but the, the, across that transition, there are some similar features in the the superscripts shared by those psalms, and so Wilson picked up on those kinds of things. Um, and what he found, anyway, was that there's there's some uh, you know, this kind of evidence corroborates the the major book divisions, uh, which are marked by those doxologies or eulogies that you find at the end of of uh, Psalm 41 and 72, 89 and 106 that often begin with something like, uh, you know, blessed be Yahweh, and, and on it goes. Some of them are longer than others, but they take the same formula. So uh, these have been much discussed, the significance of them. Um, and uh, other features, I would say, that are particularly significant and, much again, much discussed, some have caused quite a bit of, uh, uh, quite a diversity of, of explanations, but uh, features like, the, uh, Psalm 72:20, which is a little postscript that occurs at the end of Psalm 72, saying that the uh, the prayers of David, son of Jesse, are ended. Uh, this has sparked all sorts of different ideas um, about about its history and its significance, mostly about its history in modern times. Uh, modern views have tended to try to explain this as a remnant. Uh, I argue that it's a remnant. Um, it could be a remnant. We don't can't really tell for sure what its origins are. But regardless of, of its origins, that it, it, it has a, a uh, an enduring significance and, and reuse, as it were, within the Psalter that, that says something quite uh, profound, I think, about the way the Psalter as a whole is understood. Um, 
so there's, uh, these are the major kinds of evidence to my mind. Other kinds of evidence that scholars have, have discussed, um, and I'm, I'm a little bit less convinced of their significance for understanding at least the arrangement of Psalms in toto and, uh, uh, with some of these, but things like the doublets, the, the places where you get Psalms that are, um, are reduplicated in different places, much discussion about those and whether they reflect something about the formation of the Book of Psalms. Um, and the Elohistic Psalter, you know, the, uh, Psalms 42 to 83, this group of Psalms that uh, where Elohim predominates over Yahweh, although by no means exclusively the name Yahweh appears uh, a number of times there too, some 40 to 45 in that, that order time. So uh, th- these are the kinds of features scholars look at. Um, but even from the description I've given, you, you can tell that there's there's a lot of um, well, there's a lot of variation in the kind of uh, editorial evidence there, and and perhaps their utility for discerning editorial intent. So, for me, it was very important to go back through these uh, these kinds of evidence and evaluate them one by one and consider. What is their utility for discerning a purposeful arrangement, and and to use this then as a way of then testing uh, specific instances later on, uh, that in the in the study where I would be asking more particular questions about the relationship between covenants. So I guess uh, they would be some of the major ones, um, but I have to say that uh, some of the most influential elements in this are some of the. Uh, it's kind of the larger compositional history that scholars imagine took place to bring us to the 150 that we have. And uh, for Wilson, of course, it was made two major stages from starting with Psalm 7, uh, 2 to 89, 2 to 89, as an early form of the Psalter, which was then extended by uh, the other remaining Psalms, 1 and then books 4 and 5. So these sorts of external understandings, I suppose, or, or the big picture understandings of the history of the Psalter have played a very significant part in how scholars have interpreted theological, theological significance of the Psalter as a whole. Um, but uh, I think when it comes to just evaluating um, smaller sequences of Psalms, certainly things like the superscripts uh, and, of course, the books of 4 and 5, they're a bit sparser there. But you do have some recognisable collections of Psalms too, like the Songs of Ascent and uh, perhaps the Egyptian Hillel Psalms in 113, 118, uh, and other Davidic groups there as well. Um, these subgroups have, have become, therefore, the focus of, of uh, micro-structural stru- studies that uh, have been very fruitful, I think, in just unearthing some of the themes that you find in those places. And again, they, they're premised on certain features that Psalms have in common. I uh, so one remaining one that I haven't mentioned is, is uh, what has sometimes been uh, called concatenation or the juxtaposition of psalms that, that seem to share something in common with one another. Um, so different themes that, that you mightn't find uh, all over the Psalter, but you find in, with particular intensity in adjacent psalms, warrant some sort of inquiry as to, well, why is that? What's the significance there? So scholars have oftentimes studied that kind of thing as well. Adam, tell us about your approach to the Psalms. What do you think is the overall message of the Psalter? Um, yes, thank you. Well, that's a, that's a big question, and I don't um, propose to sort of give a, a sort of a one-liner to that. I think uh, what I've tried to do is, is, I think, illuminate one important aspect of that. 
uh, of the message of the Psalter, um, and one very central one that I found to be consistently uh, significant throughout the book. In fact, I don't actually um, assume too much at all about the Psalter as I work through it, but uh, uh, take a hypothesis, a, a, an idea, and then test to see with what consistency and coherence this theme keeps turning up. Uh, so that's kind of the approach. Um, but nonetheless, if, if I were to uh, articulate this, I, I think the figure of a, of a future David is, is very large on the horizon of the Psalter, and the expectation that, um, that all of covenant history would, would find its fulfillment um, in him. Um, you know, he realized Yahweh's reign, for instance, and we find very strong clues to this kind of thing in, in some of the royal psalms, like Psalm 72 and 101 and, um, well, 110 as well, of course, very famously. But um, say 101, the king is uh, vowing to, um, to do all the sorts of things that would actually instantiate the righteous reign of Yahweh too. There seems to be no... Um, no great d- distance between the rule of Yahweh on the one hand and the rule of the king as he's presented in the Psalter. And this happens quite often in, in it. So uh, the the, uh, the prominence of a future Davidic king looms large in the Psalter. And, and I find that uh, he seems to have this role of, of interceding for God's people, um, of mediating covenantal renewal. So that whereas uh, oftentimes if you look at the Deuteronomic history, you, you, you see kingship is largely the problem there, uh, the reason for exile, you really don't get that picture in the Psalter. Um, kingship is, is not, uh, not the source of the crisis. Uh, it's often at the centre of the crisis for obvious reasons. Uh, the, the king, along with everybody else, is exiled. But, um, but nonetheless, the king is often actually proffered as a solution, I would argue, to a, co- a crisis of the covenant, which is far broader than just the person of the king, but the but the, uh, the the failure of the nation as a whole. So Psalms like Psalm 81 indict the people for um, not keeping God's commands, for instance, or uh, 78 uh, repeat the cyclical pattern of the faithless response of, of God's people to the covenant, and then culminates with this focus on, on God's election of Judah, of Zion, and of the king, of, of David, uh, who would shepherd the people with an upright heart and so forth. So the picture of kingship is actually very positive, um, even though the king is, is at the centre, as it were, of, of the laments too. If we look in places like Psalm 89, um, even there you don't find any explicit um, accusation against the king uh, if anybody, if it's anybody's fault, the the exile is the fault of, of Yahweh for not coming good on his promises, and it's it's characteristic of a lament like this is to take God's promises, um, drawn of course from the Davidic covenant and Second Samuel seven, and then throw them back in his face, you know, put them before him and say, God, you promised, uh, come good, uh, restore, you know, re- redeem, that kind of thing. So, uh, and again, I guess we get the same sort of picture in uh, Psalms 105 and 106, this historical psalm pair that, like Psalm 78, contrasts the faithfulness of Yahweh in Psalm 105, that comes out very clearly, uh, with the faithlessness of the nation. And what's very telling for me is that in Book 4, 
uh, which is, as Wilson advocated, was sort of the editorial centre for him of the book and, and seemed to uh, centre everything around the kingship of Yahweh, though, of course, he, he played off the kingship of Yahweh against the kingship of David uh, in ways that uh, don't sit uh, comfortably with me, um, is that these these psalms actually recount pre-monarchic history. They don't enter into that historical period, and I find it find that significant uh, that if if the if book four is in a sense explaining sort of the failure of kingship and its outcomes, uh, well, uh, why is it that when it focuses on the the, the faithlessness of Israel and that it, it's focusing on the pre-monarchic period, not uh, the period of the monarchy as you would expect from say the the uh, the Deuteronomic history. Um, so, uh, yeah, th- these are the themes that, that come out to me, that the crisis of covenant is a crisis not just of the Davidic covenant, but of covenant generally. Um, you know, covenant is very much a unity in the Psalter, as I, uh, as I found. Um, and and that, that the problem isn't the king. The, the solution is actually seems to be the king. <laughs> and and he, uh, you know, he, he comes uh, and, and intercedes for the people. I think in Psalm 86 we find this quite... Uh, quite prominent uh, as, he, as he prays. Uh, first of all, it's a very personal prayer, but in praying for his own, uh, own well-being, um, you know, he draws in a whole nation. Um, and likewise, the theme of intercession, I think, comes out very strongly um, in the way Moses is picked up. And uh, in Book 4, where most of the mentions of Moses are found, um, and then David comes on the scene in Psalm 101 to 103 and really taught for the whole end of the book, I would suggest, uh, as a, a sort of a new Moses figure. Anything that's true of Moses seems now to be on the lips of David, who, uh, who you know, vows to fulfill God's reign, as it were, or to instantiate God's reign by his own um, righteous rule in Psalm 101, uh, who, who is lamenting and, and I'd argue also interceding in Psalm 102, identifying with the poor and the needy there. And then in Psalm 103, announcing the grace of God, the, the forgiveness of God, um, as in fact Yahweh had done to Moses back in um, Exodus 34 when he pronounced the grace formula there. Uh, but here we find it on the lips of David, which I find very significant. So I guess that gives you a bit of a, a taste of the uh, of the the, the major uh, central hope, as I understand it, in, in the Psalter. Uh, it's by no means the full extent of the Psalter theology, but I think it's a core piece of it that uh, one needs to entertain and wrestle with if, if one is to uh, get to the heart of the Psalter's theology. While it is commonplace in scholarship to pit covenants against one another, like the Mosaic Covenant versus the Davidic or Abrahamic Covenant, you argue that there are a theological unity in the Psalms. Tell us about that. Yes, yeah, I think this is a really important um, question to to inquire of. Uh, you're right, there is this assumption out there, and it was there in Wilson, you know, the Davidic covenant is the problem, the Mosaic covenant is a solution. Um, uh, and it's, it's uh, you know, a lot of scholars will be a bit more nuanced about this, I think, and, and talk in terms of the... the the transformation of the Davidic covenant into more democratized terms and that kind of thing. Um, I, as, I, as I actually see it the other way around, I think there's, there's more of a royalization of the, uh, the pre-monarchic covenants. Uh, so many of the, the, uh, the central obligations, 
implications, say, of the Mosaic Covenant um, or of the or the promises attached to the Mosaic and Abrahamic covenants uh, uh, seem to center around the king and are, are re in, reintroduced in the Psalter in terms of the king. And that's kind of a, a central point of, of the study of my book. Um, but my my first sort of insight into the unity of the covenants here really came as a result of, of a, uh, a study of Barit in the Psalter, the, the word covenant. And in fact, the whole chapter is devoted to this. And where it, it struck me that it's always assumed that this is Yahweh's covenant. And uh, even when the word turns up without reference to Abraham or Moses or Sinai, which is, you know, happens most of the time. Um, it's it's uh, sort of self-evident or it's assumed to be self-evident um, what this covenant is. And then at, at the same time, you often get entailments of, of various covenants, be it Davidic or Mosaic, most often Mosaic, and, uh, and they seem to all kind of blur together a bit in terms of the identity. There's not this effort to, to relate one to the other that uh, perhaps modern scholarship has been a little bit more... Um, interested in. So I find that kind of distinction, it's, it's a historical distinction to be sure in historical perspective. And there, there are Psalms that certainly highlight um, one covenant or another, like Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, Psalm 105, of course, the Davidic covenant in 89. But when it boils down to it, um, so many of the same kinds of uh, concerns uh, seem to uh, uh, go, uh, go around all of them. Um, and the fortunes of the people, uh, the the well-being of the nation, uh, the future of kingship, all seem to stand or fall together uh, with this this idea of covenant. And yeah, I, so I guess when when you look at Psalm eighty nine and, and you see that, and understandably, Psalm eighty nine has been focused on a lot because it seems to be the great. Uh, psalm that, that tells us what the central crisis of the Psalter is that it seeks to answer. Um, you know, Wilson certainly uh, propelled that, gave that momentum. Um, it's even there, while the king is central, all the people are affected. Uh, you, you can't, the king can't be uh, the sole person to lose out here when the Davidic covenant fails. The whole nation is, is suffering. Um, which would embrace the uh, the mosaic as well, and and you know this sort of goes back to uh, some insights that I'd read in in Krauss actually, who explained in uh, pre-exilic times that the role of the king was uh, very much one that had to do with covenantal renewal, so that in a, in a sense the Davidic covenant it establishes the king as as a figure who who would maintain and ensure. Uh, the proper worship at the temple, for instance, so David, for instance, is presented as patron of the temple in, in Book of Chronicles, another post-exilic work. And and you have um, a, a great uh, focus then on, on, on the king as, as being central even to the Mosaic covenant functioning and working well. Um, so that the same sort of standards that are expected of the people, of course, are expected all the more of, of the king and, and there's a, a great harmony between the covenants there. So I ask the question, what, what becomes of that hope uh, in exile, do, do, do the post-exilic scribes who compiled the book of Psalms, do they give up on this? Do they give up on the role of kingship in restoring the covenant relationship between God and his people? Or do they look to it all the more earnestly? And I'd argue it's the latter. I think that uh, the, the Psalms 
uh, point all the more to kingship as central to the restoration of of the uh, the people and the nation, and of course the, the covenant between them. Your book argues well that the Psalter's editors shaped the arrangement of the Psalms to focus hope on the arrival of the Messiah, a new David. How does the Psalter's prologue, that Psalms one and two, portray this new David? Yes, th- this is, uh, I think, an interesting um, uh, aspect of it. I-, I treat this at the, right at the end of the book, by the way. It's kind of, I, I see it somewhat as icing on the cake, hopefully. <laughs> it is icing that, that fits well with the rest of the cake. I'll let the readers be uh, the judge of that. But um, and, and so most of my argumentation is based on other Psalms, particularly like Psalm 72 that I mentioned before, and then Psalms in which the grace formula appears, uh, that is Yahweh, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, uh, which always appears on the mouth of David. Now, you know, with all its mosaic connotations, it, that seems quite um, significant to me that David should be the one to speak this. So, again, David seems central to these sorts of themes. Now, getting back to Psalms 1 to 2, though, um, yeah, this is a much discussed thing, uh, you know, just how it functions. Does Psalm 1 qualify Psalm 2 as an addition to it? You know, was Psalm 2 a royal introduction to an early Psalter that Psalm 1 then forces us to reread in its light? Um, well, it seems to me that uh, you've got to reckon with the net effect of, of compi- you know, combining these two Psalms and and see a progression from the more general focus on um, the righteous, wicked contrast that you find in Psalm 1 with the Torah-loving, um, righteous person who, who uh, actually there's, there's a lot of priestly overtones here and scholars have, have picked a lot of these themes up already. Um, and then you move into Psalm 2 where the, the, these, these ideas seem to be focused more specifically in terms of the righteous king, the, the anointed son of, of God, son of Yahweh, and the, uh, and the nations who would uh, rebel against both of them. Uh, and there you have, of course, Yahweh and his king as a joint force. Uh, there's really no playing these two off against each other. They, they go together. Um, so, you know, the, even the genres of the psalms as, as have been identified, the Psalm 1 being a Torah psalm, Psalm 2 being a royal psalm, I think says something about the, the kind of uh, focus that the Psalter uh, would, uh, wishes to open with. That is a, a king who who observes Torah and who is faithful to to God God and His Word, um, and and this is then picked up at various other places. Uh, scholars like Jamie Grant uh, have, have picked this up and, and um, developed it very well. I think. Um, I, I think there's there's more though. Uh, even the the way in which the king uh, the kind of role that he plays with respect to the nations. Uh, picks up some themes that I develop later on in, or earlier on in the book, but are developed later on in the Psalter, um, and that is the, the idea of, uh, of the king as a mediator. Um, at one point in Psalm two, um, he recounts the decree of of Yahweh, uh, who who invites the king to ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. So it seems to me that that psalm already places the king in a place of intercession, who who asks of Yahweh 
to inherit the nations. So the king is central to God's own plan to draw in the nations. Um, and you know, scholars have noticed uh, just how universalized the the promises of uh, uh, are in the Psalter. That you know, even the concept, the notion of land is seems to be universalized in the Psalter, especially as you move into the latter parts of it, uh, where it's the whole earth. And of course, we culminate in the Psalter with the, the great uh, hallelujahs at the end in Psalms 146 to 150, where uh, all flesh are to praise God. You know uh, that everything that has breath praise the Lord. That's how we end here. But right from the beginning, it seems that the King occupies this central mediatory role uh, at the invitation of Yahweh to you know, ask Him, and He received the, the nations. Um, now, that, that picture is affirmed right at the end. You have this, this very interesting little uh, inclusio about Psalms 1 and 2, uh, these blessed statements that, that be, both begin Psalm 1, you know, blessed is the man, etc., and then this moves to blessed are all who take refuge in him. And uh, as it's been pointed out many times, the idiom here is that you, you take refuge in Yahweh, However, the most recent antecedent of uh, of him here seems to be the sun. You know, kiss the sun, God said, the, the psalm says to the nations, uh, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, lest you be reckoned amongst the wicked, that Psalm 1 is already contrasted with the righteous. So how are the, the nations to be accounted amongst the righteous? Uh, well, they're to, and not to be counted amongst the wicked and their, perish, and their way perish. Well, it's to take refuge in the sun, I'd suggest. Um, and again, it's, it's not really an either or, finally, between Yahweh and the king at this point. Um, because they're a joint force. You, you can't separate them. But nonetheless, how do you get in good with Yahweh? Well, by doing obeisance to the sun, to, by uh, subjecting oneself to the sun. So I think that, that some of the themes that I develop later on, um, or that are developed later on in the Psalter, are, are very much um, there, at least um, uh, in a nascent way, in Psalms 1 and 2. Adam, would you walk us through the five books of the Psalter, summarizing their Davidic theme? I'll try. Uh, yes, I will try. Um, yeah, I'll probably focus a little bit more on the, the second half of the Psalter, because I think that's kind of the business end of it, um, certainly from uh, the big picture of, of the Psalms and how it's been discussed. Uh, but yes, certainly, I think uh, I think we can start with a few little soundings in the in the earlier part and then move into the latter part uh, you know, hopefully this will be somewhat fruitful. Uh, the, the the early books, of course, as I mentioned earlier, are a very have a very heavy Davidic focus anyway. And um, if you look just at say the first two books, they begin with this obviously the introduction, Psalms one and two that we just discussed, and then build up to Psalm seventy two. And um, within that group, you've got a, a very strong historical focus. That is. Uh, 12 of the 13 psalms that have some sort of historical note attached to them, um, all, by the way, attached to Davidic psalms. These are notes about David. Uh, but 12 of the 13 historical psalms occur there. So there seems to be more of a focus on the founding father, if you like, of the Davidic covenant, the, 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 the David of history, 
there. And, um, and so we, we find his uh, Psalm 51 and, uh, you know, for instance, where he laments his adultery uh, with Bathsheba and murder of Uriah the Hittite. Um, and, and that kind of uh, historical perspective comes out much more strongly. And I'd argue that this is uh, really underscored then by the, the, the postscript at the end of Psalm 72, uh, which, as I mentioned earlier, reads, you know, ended are the prayers of David, son of Jesse. And that that genealogical qualifier is actually quite important to understanding the significance of, of David in the Psalms. That prior to this point, and throughout books one and two, there is a predominant focus, and not an exclusive one. I mean, you really can't separate uh, the, the historical David from the covenant any more than you can separate any future king from the covenant. Um, but nonetheless, there's a predominant focus on the historical David there that implies that thereafter uh, there's more of a, a, fu- a focus on future David, so that, uh, you know, whether this is a future monarch in the Davidic uh, line uh, more generally or even eschatologically, uh, an eschatological David. Um, so that, that I think is quite significant. And, you know, when you consider that Psalm 72 is itself a Psalm of Solomon, which, of course, the ambiguity of the Lama there can be taken, as has been pointed out by Brother Childs and others, uh, to mean for Solomon, that David is now praying for Solomon as he ages. We get a good picture of, of, of an aging psalmist in Psalm 71 and is ready to, if you like, hand on the kingdom to the next generation. Uh, lots of themes like that build at this place in the Psalter, and they together uh, suggest that the theme of uh, Davidic uh, monarchic succession is very important here and that we're looking forward to future kingship. So, um, well, within books one and two, uh, just to give one small example of how I see David being significant there, I mentioned that uh, the Asaph Psalm 50 is dislocated from 73 to 83. And uh, in my reading, I've not really found too many very satisfying explanations for that. But it struck me that as you read Psalm 50, um, you, you, it's one of these psalms that has a very strong focus on covenant. It features in, in uh, chapter 5 of my book where I deal with the, the term covenant uh, throughout the psalms. And uh, you, you read this and it's this clear summons to the people of Israel uh, drawing on their identity as Mosaic covenantal people. Um, they're, they're people whom he made uh, a covenant with by sacrifice, and it's, it's hard not to think of Exodus 24 there um, and the, the people being consecrated as God's people uh, in mission to, to the world and in all this, you know, to, to live under the covenant. Um, and then you get to verses 14 and 15, and you have some very specific commands uh, which, which are given to the people. You know, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, perform your vows to the Most High. I will call and call on me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. And then after all this, you get straight into a Davidic collection. And as I looked at each of these sorts of elements of those commands, the theme of a sacrifice of thanksgiving, uh, of performing vows, um, it was amazing how many times these wound up in Davidic Psalms. I mean, even just to perform your vows one, uh, there's some four um, instances of those, those words, which themselves are in combination and not that common in the Psalms, 
but there's some four that occur alone in the next Davidic group. And it seems that David is presented, even the historical David, son of Jesse, is presented as one who uh, who seeks to perform vows to, to Yahweh in fulfillment of a promise that is broadly, uh, or a, 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 a command rather, that is broadly uh, given to all the people. So already you seem to have this narrowing uh, where the king is particularly in focus there. Well, I guess if we move on to book three, uh, the structure of book three seems to me, even though David is is fairly scarce there as uh, a name, we don't find him turning up too much, except for in Psalm 89, of course, at the end of it. Um, nonetheless, David turns up in some very structurally significant places. Um, book three com- is comprised of Psalm 73 to 83, the Asaph group there, the main Asaph group, and then the Korahite group that follows it, uh, 84 to 88, and then, of course, Psalm 89, the great royal lament. Um, But it's right at the centre of both of those two major constituent parts that you find David. So I mentioned before Psalm 78, how it recounts this cyclical faithlessness of God's people and how it presents David as a solution to this problem. Well, Psalm 78 is central to the Asaph collection, and it's more than twice the length of any other Asaph psalm there. So it's very dominant to that collection in a way, actually, as uh, Psalm 119 is dominant within Book 5 and quite central to it. Um, and and what, what uh, both of them have in common is that they, uh, well, what Psalm 78 says of David is that he's Yahweh's servant, uh, and this is a theme that comes up quite prominently in Book 3. Likewise, Psalm 119, 13 times the psalmist's major way of referring to himself is as your servant. And so I suggest that um, overall, there seems to be a, a very um, deliberate Davidic association with, um, with Psalm 119 too. But before we get out of book three, David is also central to the Korahite collection because you have an entire psalm in the middle of that collection as well, Psalm 86. Uh, and in fact, it's the first Davidic prayer, uh, not just any psalm, but it's a tefillah, a prayer, after that uh, Psalm 72.20 that said that the prayers of David, son of Jesse, are over. So it's not just that Dave, Davidic psalms are finished, according to that, that postscript, but that Davidic prayers are finished, and yet here we have uh, a prayer of David. And this, to my mind, is is too too obvious a connection to be missed by the scribes who placed it there, uh, not to require some sort of understanding of it along the lines that I mentioned before, that, that well, the, the, this prayer and, and subsequent Davidic Psalms uh, are concerned not really with with David, son of Jesse, but with future kingship, with the, the future coming king. And uh, there, as I said, he, he intercedes, he prays, and um and I'd say identifies with with the poor and needy much in the way that Psalm 102 does as well. So uh, Psalm 86 uh, is actually the first of the psalms that uh, recount more fully the grace formula from Exodus 34:6, "Your gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love." And here David, if you like, calls upon Yahweh in his day of trouble and appeals to God's character according to the grace formula. So here we, we get our first uh, taste of that there. Again, 
David is servant three times in that psalm. He, I am your servant, your servant, your servant. So that, that's the, the abiding theme here that, of David as servant of Yahweh. Uh, and again, not the historical David, it seems, within the overall arrangement of the psalms, but, um, but a future David at that. When we turn to book four, um, this is, is much discussed, uh, a lot of work being done on this uh, to un- unpack its significance. And, um, you know, Wil- Wilson was early, an early one to recognize its importance. Uh, I've already mentioned a few clues to <laughs> how I understand this book. Um, and, and that is that Moses, uh, for all his prominence there, uh, seems to me to set a pattern that then David fulfills within the book. Um there's a, a large emphasis on Moses as an intercessor there. Um, other scholars have, have found that. There is certainly the focus on, on Yahweh's kingship, um, but then this is immediately followed up by this small group of Davidic psalms that well, start with a royal psalm and seem to repeat the same sorts of concerns that you have in a psalm like Psalm 72, which uh, praises up. Uh, you know, the, 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 the proper virtues of kingship and idealizes them in a way. Um, well, now in Psalm 101, we have uh, David, a new David, vowing to um, to look with favor on the meek in the land and to deal with the wicked, to do the kinds of things that would uh, that that are consistent with the reign of Yahweh that have just been celebrated in um, especially Psalms 93 to, to 100 there. Um, and even that group of psalms, it seems to me, uh, it has been arranged as um, as a conscious sort of echo of the same kinds of theological contours that you find in a in like the Song of the Sea in Exodus 15. So you've got Yahweh reigns psalms. Well, you know Moses says this in in Exodus 15. You've got a couple of songs in um, 96 and 98. Sing a, a new song to Yahweh. So the old song. Uh, for an old Exodus, but the new song for for a new one. Uh, this Exodus being a kind of a fairly pervasive paradigm of God's future redemptive activity, as we find in other books like Isaiah and so forth as well. So uh, it seems to me that um, that this is that the, the first part of Book Four uh, establishes a lot of this, but then David comes on the scene, and in fact, you know, the first things out of his mouth is that you know I will sing of your. Uh, your chesed and your mishpat, your, your steadfast love and your, your justice for God. Uh, so David is, is, is the chief singer of these things, but he doesn't just sing about them. He then goes on to make these vows that would instantiate this kind of reign as well. Um, I think I've already talked a little bit about Psalms 102 and 103, but just briefly to recap, I mean, we get a quite a, an interesting composite picture of David in 101 to 103, I think, in that, um, in addition to that sort of royal um, David setting things right, uh, establishing Yahweh's justice uh, in Psalm 101, we get David as an embattled, suffering intercessor uh, and prayer, who, by the way, announces the time of favor and uh, the time of compassion on Zion um, in that psalm. So even, you know, he says it's time to have compassion, it's time to have favor on Zion. And then this is picked up. Again, these same two terms are, basic, are actually cognates of those two first words of the grace formula, gracious and compassionate. Uh, this is picked up, in, again, in Psalm 103, where the grace formula is found is once again on the lips of, of David. So there seems to be a very conscious effort to present David as both interceding for Zion, 
on the one hand, praying and identifying with the poor, and then announcing, as only Yahweh can announce, his, the, the graciousness and compassion of, of God uh, towards his people, forgiving the people as a father has compassion on his son, etc. So that's um, a major theme of Psalm 103, and I think a very important one. For understanding, how is it then that David functions in this covenant-renewing way, in this mediator way that I've been talking about? By the time we get to uh, book five, uh, you know, we, we're talking about a book where David is uh, is very much back on the scene, and there's been a lot of work lately done on that. Um, uh, you know, most recently, I think Michael Sneely has done a, a great job. I think of of just unpacking um, the, the importance of David there, and um, I, I would understand book five broadly uh, structured in a chiastic fashion. Again, Psalm 119 seems to be quite central to that book. But the book begins and ends, broadly speaking, with Davidic groups uh, from 108 to 110, and then you've got 138 to 145. And this is accentuated by the placement of acrostic poems here because you've got those two anonymous acrostic psalms in 111, 112, buttressed right up against that early Davidic collection on the one hand, and Psalm 145 is itself uh, an acrostic psalm that concludes the that's last Davidic group. Uh, what's interesting is in the hate line of, of all of, those, of both acrostics, or both 101, 111, 112, and 145, you have the at least the opening words of the grace formula. In 145, you have the whole grace formula. So there's uh, it seems to be very intentional design there about placing David as bookends to this uh, this book. Moving in a step, um, you've got, broadly speaking, two well-recognized liturgical groupings in the Egyptian Halal, 113 to 118, and then uh, the Songs of Ascents in 120 to 134. And uh, even the Songs of Ascents, it strikes me that you've got a Solomonic psalm, the second psalm of Solomon in the Psalter, um, you know, central to that collection. And then either side of that, balancing it, it seems, two Davidic psalms, which are each separated by a psalm, so in 122 and 124 and then 131 and 133, <laughs> and between 131 and 133, uh, Psalm 132 with its uh, strong royal um, and Davidic covenantal themes there. So it seems to me that David is very much built into the structure of Book 5 as well, and that uh, many of these themes that I've been talking about uh, are reinforced there, and that you do in the end, I think, get quite a consistent picture and perspective on kingship. So it's an interesting window into how uh, the scribes who um, lived sometime in the post exilic period understood kingship, what kind of expectations they had around it, and how this related to the crisis of exile. Before we let you go, Adam, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your family, and maybe any other new projects that you're working on? Yeah, thank you. I, I'm uh, married with uh, six young children, and um, so we're quite a busy household. Um, I work at, uh, in Adelaide, in North Adelaide to be precise, at Australian Lutheran College, which is a member college of the University of Divinity. Uh, most of its member colleges are centred in, in Melbourne, Australia. Um, prior to this, I, I taught for four years at Concordia University in Irvine, California, 
Um, so I'm you know, fairly early in my teaching career and, uh, and loving it, actually. So uh, that's a little bit about, I guess, my general um, family and, and work history. At the moment, um, I'm working on a commentary for the Concordia commentary series on Psalms 101 to 150. Um, so that'll be the that'll be uh, occupying me over the next years, uh, but I'm I'm very excited to to get into that. I've been I've been loving it so far and enjoying finding new things. It's amazing just how much more there is to discover. Uh, the more you you look into uh, God's word, so I, I I'm very much enjoying that. It's very enriching, and um, I, I look forward to hopefully getting that done in a few years' time. Well, it's been great talking about your book, Covenant Relationships and the Editing of the Hebrew Psalter. Again, Adam, thank you so much for being with us today. You're welcome, Michael, and thank you very much for having me on. All right, friends, you've been listening to New Books in Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. We've been speaking with Adam Hensley about his recent publication, Covenant Relationships and the Editing of the Hebrew Psalter. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>